welcome to Into Stillness, everybody. Um, usually, this is a guided meditation podcast, but it seems to be turning more into just a straight-up meditation podcast. Um, and over the last few weeks, I've been discussing the practice of meditation with my mentors on the subject, and I'm super lucky today to have Lauren Ekstrom with me, who is one of the very first teachers who really um, inspired me in the practice of yoga and meditation. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you for being here. I'm super happy to uh, be able to have this conversation with you today. I'm so honored to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Um, so just to start it off, I've uh, been asking people to give them give a little of an introduction of who they are, and then maybe uh, go into detail, maybe not super detail, but your journey into the practice of meditation. Sure. So my name is Lauren Ekstrom. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher based in the Los Angeles area. And these days, my primary mode of teaching, rather than traveling and teaching trainings or live classes or conferences, is on my online streaming platform called Inner Dimension TV. And meditation has really always been in my life longer than my yoga practice has been. I first came to meditation when I was an adolescent. I had a girlfriend whose mother died of cancer, of breast cancer. And my father, who wasn't religious or really even spiritual, came home one day and gave me a book called Talking to Heaven. And it was written by this man named James Van Prague, who speaks to people after they've died. And this was really yeah. out of the wheelhouse of things that my father would have gifted me. Yeah. But in this book, James Van Prague talked about the chakras and the energy centers. This was all kind of new information for me. I wasn't raised with any particular religious tradition, no real structure for spirituality in my life. But there were always people around me who were deeply spiritual. My grandmother was pretty psychic and there would be these really bizarre things that would come up in our family where if I had a fever as a little girl, my mom would get a phone call and she'd be asking if my fever was really into tarot and actually has his own published deck of tarot cards and is kind of well known in the occult world. Yeah. So these things were around, but they weren't really a direct part of my life. Once I received this book, I learned about meditation and I would be in my room at 12 years old, lighting a candle and doing what at the time were chakra-based meditations. As I got into high school, I obviously walked away from that practice as so many people do and got yeah. interested in other things, making sure my academics were at the level I wanted them to be at, to go to the school I thought I needed to go to, as well as the kind of off-collar things. I got really into partying and, and not treating my mind or my body as well as I needed to be treating it. So by the time I got to college, that all really caught up with me and I started having panic attacks. And 
I was crippled by anxiety. I couldn't leave my apartment at times because these attacks would really seemingly come out of nowhere. My heart would start racing. I would start sweating. I thought I was going to faint or throw up or both. And I almost became a little bit agoraphobic. I was afraid to go out. I was afraid of these things hitting me and being in a place where I wouldn't be okay. And so I called my mom and she said, you know what, why don't you go back to meditating and why don't you start going to yoga? And that was a real moment of change in my life. So I started an embodied practice, which I think is really important for those of us. And everybody has anxiety. It just manifests in different ways. It's part of being human. It's not something we ever get rid of. We don't meditate our way out of it. But having these two partners of an embodied physical yoga asana practice as well as a seated practice changed my relationship to what it meant to be human and to have these different emotions and feelings. And I have never had an anxiety attack ever again. It doesn't mean I don't get anxious, but I've never (laughs) had an anxiety attack again. And from there, I went on to teach yoga and I didn't want to teach meditation. You know, I think meditation to me was something you had to be invited into teaching. You had to have a teacher tell you that you were allowed to start or invite you into that seat. But the more I taught yoga, the more students and studio owners and clients kept asking me, please, could we practice meditation together? And so slowly I started dipping my toe into the seat of the teacher while also continuing my own studies. And I went on to study with Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock and Joanna Hardy, Deborah Eden Tull, and as well as going on my own retreats, which I think are... uh, especially important for those of us that are not just teachers, but practitioners of meditation. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and I think the, the role of the teacher thing you kind of got into at the end had me thinking, um, especially with your and my relationship, like ever since I met you, uh, brings me back to last year, I think, at the Toronto Yoga Conference. I took your Journey into Gratitude, I believe it was called, course on the uh the sunday and i just like i don't remember ever having such like a i don't know like an emotional reaction to like a lead practice before Mm. um so i'm just wondering like has that ever occurred to you like did you have a story of that that you can share like every time i think about something like or experiences like that especially with a individual in a teacher role really really makes me realize how important it is and how um a teacher could really open up the practice to you. So I'm wondering if like you've had experiences like that yourself. I think in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm continually having experiences like that. And I think it's important to speak to this contemporary piece of what it means to have a teacher student relationship or a student mentor relationship. Because I know for myself, in the beginning, I was really attached to this idea that I would have one teacher who I was in personal, continual contact with, one-on-one, and that's not really the way that it works today. You know, a lot of my teachers, I'm spending time with by listening to their 
by listening to the podcast, by reading their books, by taking their online courses. So I have this deep relationship with, especially I would say, my three primary teachers these days, Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and Deborah Eden-Tall, mostly through the work that they're putting out in the world. And so I think just to say to people, you can have a relationship with a teacher that is profound and emotional and insightful and life-changing and also never speak to that teacher one-on-one. Deborah Eden-Tall is is my one-on-one teacher and I do mentor with her and have calls with her and holds me accountable in my own practice. But these other teachers it's at a distance. And so some of the more profound moments for me, you know, recently I would say on the last retreat that I went on out in Joshua tree, there was a teacher who I had never met before who was co-leading this retreat. And it was now it'll be two years ago, but it really taps into something that's occurring for us in a heightened state right now inside of the social justice movement. And she told, she's a, a black female teacher, yeah. and she told the story of pulling her car away uh, to go drive, and she still had her earphones in because she had previously been on a phone call. And in California, you're not supposed to, I guess, have those in, and she got pulled over. And the female police officer pulled her out of the car, had her sitting on the curb. I mean, it was really above and beyond what was called for in the situation. And as I listened to her telling this story seated in the meditation hall, I just sobbed. And it was a real moment of empathy. I have chills right now, even as I'm thinking about it again, because it was once again a realization as a white woman in the city that I live in, that would never happen to me. And it broke my heart that this woman had been treated this way and was having to face these moments of adversity and challenge. So I think that that's really what takes us on these emotional journeys with our teachers oftentimes is their ability to be powerful storytellers And as meditators, it's this balance, right? Because on the one hand, story is how we as human beings have connected and bonded throughout all of history and all of time. And yet as meditators and as teachers potentially of meditation, we also want to strike that balance of not adding to unhelpful narrative. And so how do we use story to impart a lesson or an idea of what it looks like to be living your practice without telling a story just to tell a story, if that makes sense. And I think when the teacher strikes that balance, that's when that chord inside of us is really hit. And we feel empathy, we feel compassion, we feel it inside of ourselves. And then maybe those tears come or the heart opens. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, so has, you know, you are a practicing meditation teacher. So as you mentioned earlier, especially I thought of it with the, the story with the black female teacher, um, has like the instability of everything lately changed how you 
have shared a practice or like what you share during a practice, I think. And sorry, my internet just froze for a moment. Having, having, having my baby is the question. (laughs) Um, No, um, I meant like the, the year because it's been such an unstable year. Um, as, and as you're a practicing meditation teacher, I mean, Mm -hmm. has it changed how you share a practice or say what you would share in a practice uh, recently? I mean, no question. I, I, so that's many layered. And so on the one hand, I love to be in community. I love to be with people around people and I always have an idea coming in to teach a class of what the theme is going to be, what the story might be that I'm going to tell, the intention that I'm setting, and of course, what the particular meditation practice is going to be that day. When I come in to the studio, let's say, to teach I'm spending time talking with the students who are there. I'm checking in with them. I'm seeing how they're doing. And that information might completely change what I end up teaching that day. In this new era of COVID, I'm teaching virtually from home. So I log on to Zoom. The time comes, everyone populates into the participants box on Zoom, no video, no communication, and then I just go. Yeah, you don't get now, that face people, to face. We can, yeah. No, yeah. and people are good about contributing in the chat at the beginning or the end and sharing how they're doing and, and creating that connection. People are really trying to find a way on both ends of it, teacher and student. But another side of that is so much of what I end up bringing forward to share in a class comes from my own life experience. You know, when you look at when, especially for the teachers who are out there, you don't need to have some big experience in or some crazy story to to come into your class with. Things are happening every single day in your own life to teach from, to be a a basis of insight or inspiration for how the practice might come into action in the world and in our lives. But now, obviously, that circle has gotten much smaller for me to draw from. And I don't have these interactions with the world. The farthest I go is to the grocery store once a week. And the rest of the time, I'm home with my husband, my baby, and my mom who cares who cares for my daughter sometimes or walks in the neighborhood and that's it so i don't have these other places really to pull from of direct experience outside of this small circle which has been a shift a shift and a change yeah no i i, I agree it's it's kind of turned into i see i go to the grocery store i come home essentially it's i mean it's not it's much worse down where you guys are. Not gonna lie, Canada is is kind of. I think we they did pretty good off the bat, so it's not too bad here. But you still can't do anything. Like I, I don't get to see anyone I'm used to seeing, and it's just like it's such a weird experience, especially when it comes to. I find it affecting you know your everyday practice. Like all, all like I move through everything differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess, yeah, let's move, let's move on to the mother question uh, you thought I was asking earlier. So 
I, for people that don't know, you just had a baby not that long ago. So congratulations again. Uh, I do love following uh, your story with her on Instagram. I think it's beautiful. Some of the things you talk about, but I'm super interested as, you know, someone who's probably not going to ever experience it, but I would love to hear um, how your journey into being and now actually being a mother has affected your meditation practice. So my daughter just turned eight months old yesterday, which is just mind blowing. Yeah. And while I was pregnant, I was meditating every single day as I, as I did before then, but it was a very conscious journey into conception and into pregnancy for me. And I was regularly practicing yoga and taking incredibly good care of myself. And one of the amazing things, and I, you know, I, unfortunately for my daughter, she gets to be sort of the guinea pig (laughs) of testing some of these things. But what some of the research shows is that women who meditate while they're pregnant end up having children who are better able to self-regulate. Now, who doesn't want a child who can self-regulate at an efficient skill level? So I was very interested in that, but more than anything, I was sustaining my own practice and taking care of my mind and my heart and my body and, of course, of her development at that time. And I will say now that she's eight months old, she is the most joyful ray of light I have ever known. We go on these walks and she's just flapping her arms (laughs) and smiling. And in this time of a global pandemic, she brings such joy to people's lives. I never intended really to share her at the level that I have publicly. This pandemic has changed that in so many ways and, and she's brought forward such joy and love. So I think that there is something to be said for the impact that a meditating family has on a child. And I see that in her. Now, when they're first born, they're tiny little infants in that first month or two, they're sleeping almost all day long. So even though you might be up every couple of hours, every hour or two in the nighttime, there is still space to meditate during the day. So I think I went over 125 days straight of being in a consistent meditation practice after she was born. Now that looked different than it did before (laughs) she was born. Before she was born, I would wake up in a quiet, dark house and go sit in my area and meditate for 20 plus minutes to start the day. Now, once she was born, what I had to do was be flexible, which is what practice teaches us, right? Like we're not going to be so rigid and so attached to practice looking one way. And so for a period of time, I had to take meditation where I could get it in my day, which wasn't always ideal, to be honest. You know, I like my structure. I like starting the day with the meditation. I like setting the tone that day. And I had to kind of let that go. I'm in a really lucky and privileged position in that I have a partner who is also a practitioner, also a meditator, and he's 
in that practice. So he would say, okay, I'm going to take her, you go meditate. Now, when we were still in our small two bedroom apartment, what was really challenging was that sometimes my meditation turned into a meditation on listening to her crying, (laughs) (laughs) which is an, is its own practice and, and letting go of how we think the environment should be and labels around that or all of the restlessness that can come up as a parent listening to a child cry or hearing a child cry and the urge that can arise to abandon practice. And so I had to sit with that. I had to practice sitting with my discomfort, my concern, my restlessness, my desire to get other things done. And I had to sit through all of that. Now that we're in this new situation where I have a dedicated practice space and I can close the doors and really be isolated and silent, I'm still sitting with some of the restlessness, but now I'm at the the place where my practice can deepen once again. So slowly but surely, the length of time that I'm sitting is getting to extend again. And then the the depth of groundedness and stillness that used to be there when I was pregnant and before is now slowly starting to return. So I think for any of the parents out there or anyone who is thinking about entering into that, it's you have to hold your practice really lightly. There's a way to still be dedicated to it and a way to know that you're going to get back to it someday. And whatever you can get to today is valuable and worthy, not just for yourself, but really for all of the people that you're around, your child, your partner, your family. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm a huge advocate of being very forgiving of yourself, especially when it comes to something that's, you know, it's a lifelong practice. You can't you can't, you can't beat yourself up about what you can't achieve. So whatever you can get done is, is beautiful. And that's, you know, that's enough at the moment. Yeah. And I think that it's also, it's, it's two things. One is, as my teacher says to me, be kinder to yourself than you think you should be, Yeah. which I really love. But part of how I have always taught is also that Compassion is not complacency because I think it's really easy for someone like me, and I'll speak to myself personally, to be maybe too compassionate, and that can devolve pretty quickly into a lack of discipline. And as a parent, but also as a student, there have been so many times in my life and now in my daughter's life where I see discipline and she's not being disciplined, but you know, having <laughs> yeah. boundaries, like don't put the shoe in your mouth, um, <laughs> that some of these disciplines are compassionate. So I think making sure that we have this, this balance of compassion and accountability becomes really important. Yeah, no, I agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, do you have anything adding on to that, like, do you have anything that you consistently tell yourself when you get like, you know, you, you don't want to do it? So I've, we've come up with a structure in our home where 
My husband practices first thing in the morning from about eight to nine. And then I practice from nine to 10. And I'm someone who functions much better with external accountability, which is part of the reason why COVID is so hard. If I have paid paid for a class, (laughs) if I have told a friend I'm going to meet them at that class, I am much more likely to be disciplined in my practice. Now, over the years, I've gotten much better with internal accountability, especially when it comes to my meditation practice. And that's actually been easier to sustain than anything else because I know what it means to my life and to my mental health and to the health of my heart and to my ability to remain connected to the deepest intentions of my heart and who I want to be during the course of the day and what I'm aligned with. So I think sitting retreats in the past have been my greatest teachers in that regard. So if on a certain day I have some resistance, what sitting retreat has taught me, so sitting 10 plus hours a day for three to 10 plus days in a row has shown me that any of that restlessness, any of that resistance or boredom or fatigue, whatever the thing is that's arising is temporary. And if I go and I sit, I'm going to be able to watch whatever it is that's arising, come and go, come and go, come and go. I'm not sitting with the agenda to fix it or change it or have it be any different. I'm sitting with simply seeing things as they really are. And that's compassion, right? The ability to sit and say like, okay, there's a lot of resistance to this today. And, you know, close now to two decades of practice has taught me that I never regret showing up for my practice. No, I think it's like, it, sometimes you think it, it's a chore, but then, you know, you realize your, your meditation practice is learning. You're like, you're learning yourself. I mean, you're learning more about yourself. Like it's one of the nicest things I think you can actually do for yourself. But I think just the, how distraction rich the world outside your mind is, it, it, for some reason, it, you, you find barriers to actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the attitudes of mindfulness are so important. And this was something that I think John Kabat-Zinn really started to first touch on in Full Catastrophe Living and teachers like Christiana Wolf have taken it even further. But one of those attitudes that we have to bring to our practice is curiosity. Yeah. And if we can just be curious, right, then we stay out of judgment, we stay out of criticism, and we can be childlike and just say, oh, this is really interesting. Wow, I am really fighting this today. I'm really resistant to this today. Why might that be occurring? Why is that here? And if we can have that childlike curiosity, it keeps the practice interesting, but it also keeps it kind which I think, again, like we were talking about, is so important so that we keep showing up. Because if it does become a chore, we're not going to keep doing it. If self-care becomes one more thing to check off of a list, 
the likelihood is that we're we're not going to be showing up for our practice anymore and we're going to start giving into that hindrance of doubt yeah do you have any variation in your actual meditation practice or is it pretty like linear you know do you pick different kinds something like that i think that it's really important to have a tool periods of time when we might need more of a practice of the heart. There might be a particular day when we really are needing loving kindness or self-compassion. That being said, you know, my practice is in that traditional wheelhouse of of traditional mindfulness or the Vipassana practices. So that's really the root of my practice. And it tends to be the place that I, I go for every practice. And yet there are times when those practices of the heart are places I will turn to, whether as simple as putting a hand over my heart as I'm sitting or sitting with the word or the phrase for me that tends to be most helpful is this belongs. May this serve to deepen my practice. And just to kind of soften into whatever the hardship or the challenge might be on that particular day. Yeah. I'm actually very curious about the Vipassana style of meditation. I've never been able to actually go on one yet, but Uh I would love to know like, do you, is there a discernible difference between, you know, before you went on one and after or like? So if it depends on, on what type of retreats we're talking about, you know, so I went on the traditional 10 day Vipassana retreat and now you can go to places like spirit rock and other retreat centers across the world where they teach a 10 day retreat with more guidance, more support, more presence of the heart yeah. and, and more, more teacher support for the students. The retreat that I went on or, and the retreats that I plan to continue going on, it's a little bit more like meditation boot camp. I don't think that there's <laughs> yeah. anything more, um, I don't know, strict than this style. So yeah. for people who aren't familiar, you know, you wake up at 4.30 and you're doing just seated meditation all day, every day for two to three hours at a time with very short breaks in between just to have a small meal or a small walk or a small rest. And it's that same schedule day in and day out. And what you're learning when you go through this particular course, and it is a course, you are learning the actual technique that the Buddha used to achieve enlightenment. So getting that technique ingrained within you over the course of the period of time that you're there, whether that's 10 days, 30 days, or three months, is a powerful, powerful tapasya. It's a powerful way of steeping yourself in the practice. So yes, I would say that there was a discernible difference for me from, from beginning to end. And more than anything is this beautiful, again, awakening to if you can sit here with yourself, you can sit with anything. 
You know, there are times where you think you are literally going to die of (laughs) boredom, or you think you are going to die if the bell does not ring because your back is aching so much or your hip is aching so much. And you don't, you don't die from it. And you transcend it at a certain point, especially for me, there was a time I get this one pain under my right shoulder blade and it's the same place I get every single time. And there just became this moment where it was there and I was there and I wasn't identified with it and there was space around it and I could just sit and sit and sit and sit. So that was, that was a powerful experience. And I would say for anybody who has a meditation practice at some point when the time allows for it, go on retreat, even if you can only get away for three days, or even if you can even only do non-residential retreats. So some of these centers teach non-residential retreats where you go for the day and then you go and you sleep at home at night. And you might do that over the course of the weekend, but being immersed in any practice for eight, 10, 12 hours at a time will fundamentally change your relationship to the practice while also giving you the great gift of community. And that was one of the great lessons that the Buddha taught at one point. his cousin and his attendant asked him, you know, what is the most important part of practice? And the Buddha said, well, the community, of course, and how powerful that it wasn't a single teaching. It wasn't one way of sitting. It was us being able to be together in this shared practice. So I think for those two reasons, it's a, it's an important undertaking for any serious student of meditation. Yeah, I was, uh, there's a place like really close to me and I was like just about to go before this whole pandemic thing happened. And now it's been shut down for, I don't know, a good six, seven months, but it's definitely something I want to do pretty soon. And I think that some, some teachers and some centers are really trying to offer these retreats virtually. I know that it's not the same. And I know we can be really attached to wanting that one particular experience. But again, I would say to students of the practice out there, which we all are, whether we're teachers or not, give yourself the gift and do a virtual retreat. You can set that up. You're already on retreat in some (laughs) way is in your yeah. home. You know, all you have to do now is log on and hear the teachings. And I don't think that we, again, would regret carving that time out to do that, even if it looks differently than maybe we had really hoped a few yeah. months ago. I think going back to the uh, community aspect you were talking about. I'm going to switch to my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I was just talking to myself for about 30 seconds there. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's you. The last piece I heard was um, speaking to the to the community piece. Yeah. Um, so going back to uh, the community aspect, I was wondering if you notice a difference between meditating in a group setting compared to a solo setting. Because I, even on like my, my last two teacher trainings and the retreat I went with you guys, I just find there to be like a whole different aspect to it when there's a whole bunch of people doing it at once even you know virtually i think you can get the same kind of feeling when you know that there's people 
all around the world practicing, practicing with you at the exact same time. Yeah, again, I think it's that it's, there's the energy and the presence of people around you. And there's that level of accountability. Uh, When, when you have other people around you, even if that's through video, you don't feel just accountable to yourself and your own practice. Suddenly you feel accountable to the other people who are there with you also meditating. I, at least, and I'll speak for myself, is that it feels very important to me whether I'm practicing yoga or whether I'm meditating to be dedicated to my practice in a way that is respectful, not just for myself, but for the people around me. And in some ways, I'm going to be a better student because I want to hold up their practice. I'm going to be less distracted. I'm going to be creating less distractions. I'm going to be less likely to scroll through my phone if I'm listening to a Dharma talk because there are other people present. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think it is also, again, it speaks to the power that we have to support and uplift each other through these practices. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Uh, this next question, I think, is probably more for myself than uh, the rest of the people, but I'm pretty new to the role of being a teacher. Somehow, uh, this whole year, I ended up making a course on meditation where you know I was so much the physical person, even through like both of my teacher trainings, and now I'm over here with a meditation com- course coming out on the weekend. So as someone who's been a teacher for a very long time, I just want to know if you have any you know, insight and advice for me on what's important to, you know, to be a meditation teacher for an extended period of time. Mm, Such a beautiful question. And, And I think that that comes from such an important place inside of you, right? That it comes from you being in the seat of the student for so long and, yeah that's an important piece for us as teachers. We say this all the time, never be a teacherless teacher. What I find oftentimes with meditation, and I'll I'll go through just the couple of things that immediately came to mind. And this seems obvious, but it's a place where I, as a teacher trainer and a mentor, see people faltering again and again and again. When people get busy teaching, they often fill their schedules to a point where their personal practice is sacrificed. If we're going to be teaching anything, we need to be steeped in that practice. And so I would always say to you and to any of the other teachers out there, prioritizing your practice isn't self-indulgent. It's accountability to yourself and your students. So keep practicing, keep finding teachers to study with, keep holding yourself accountable to your own daily practice, even if that has to look a little bit different time to time. The next is when it comes to meditation, oftentimes my personal feeling, especially when teachers are guiding a meditation practice, is that they talk too much. Yeah. 
And I'm someone who talks a lot. You know, anyone who's taken my yoga classes especially knows that it's sort of like a continual narration. But when I first started teaching meditation, I really held this space of leaving space for silence. That if people were coming to meditate, they were coming to meditate. And it wasn't my job to meditate them. If I'm talking the entire time, I'm not giving students the experience of watching their minds go somewhere else and equally watching their own innate capacity to bring themselves back again. If I'm talking, 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 talking the entire meditation and leaving no space for that inner experience, I'm going to make my students reliant on me. I don't ever want my students to be reliant on me. I want my students to know that their practice is accessible to them anytime that they need it, whether I am present or not, because the reality is that when you need your practice the most, in all likelihood, I am not going to be there in that moment. No. And if you don't know that you can do this practice without your teacher present, that is an unacceptable crutch. So it can be uncomfortable for us as teachers to be sitting in that silence. Yeah. And there is nothing more potent and powerful for our students. So what I'll often say at the beginning of a class, especially if there are new students there, I'll tell them in advance, if I'm a new teacher for you, I'd like to let you know that I leave some bigger spaces of silence. I'm always going to be here supporting your practice. And every now and then I'm going to drop in some reminders, but I will leave some bigger spaces of silence so that you can watch your mind go away and equally watch your capacity to bring it back again. And I think what I found over the course of the last eight years or so is that when I tell students that I leave space for silence, it helps them to not be so nervous. So yeah. if students don't know that you teach that way and they're new, you go silent and then they're like, wait, what do I do? What's <laughs> happening? What do I do? And yeah. they get they get caught in in the in the anxious one. So sometimes to help support newer students from getting caught in that anxiety, I'll just kind of give them that that forewarning so that they're not caught off guard. And that's been a helpful piece for me in, in teaching that way. Yeah, I think I've slowly come to notice that I, as, I've, as I've been doing this podcast for eight, seven or eight months now, and it's all been just me writing guided meditations and releasing them. I've slowly been leaving more and more silent spaces because I find like the, the guidance to be like just a kind of an attachment for a lot of people. Like they're just you get, I get to the end of talking and they're like, okay, when's he going to talk again? Like I've even had people tell me that. So I've slowly just, but I've even been including like little snippets, like this is going to be a little bit of an extra, like longer space because it, it is the most important part of the practice. I'm not, you know, I can't do it all for you. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a very personal thing that you have to learn. Mm -hmm. There used to be this commercial that would play during football season here in the U.S. And it was this guy running around his life wearing a football helmet. And in his ear was his coach talking to him all day long. Yeah. 
that would drive me crazy <laughs> if I had somebody talking in my ear all day long telling yeah. me what to do. Because the reality is, in some ways, we already have that with our own inner voice. We don't also need that from an external teacher. Yeah. And again, I think we can, we can, as students, we can crutch on that. So really empowering students to trust themselves is one of the greatest gifts that we can give as teachers. Yeah. No, you definitely got to help them get past the point of they, I think a lot of time people don't think they're doing it right. Mm -hmm. There isn't really a point of doing it right. So that like getting over that barrier, I, I think prevents a lot of people from actually like learning what they're like learning themselves and what they're doing. Absolutely. No question. I, I completely agree with that. Um, so I think we're coming up to almost an hour. So I'll leave you with my last question here. And it would be what advice would you give for someone who is a complete beginner or is just becoming interested uh, in the practice of meditation? Just start. Short and simple. Yeah. <laughs> Short and simple. Just start. You know, I, yeah. we generally speaking, if we're in a room, all of us together, and let's say that there were 10 to a thousand of us, and let's say that all of these people had some sort of practice. I would guarantee you that if we ask the question, how many people came to the practice because something was going on in your life that was leaving you anxious, depressed, unhealthy, there was some crisis in your life. And yeah. I think most people would raise their hands. Yeah. Generally speaking, we don't come to the practice because everything in our life is working and going well and feeling in a groove. So if you have the intuition that practice could be supportive for you in your life, that's the voice of the inner teacher and it deserves to be listened to. And that means sitting down and, and attending to it and yeah. feeling like at times you're not doing it right and you feeling like at times you are doing it wrong or you are all over the place. And the longer you sit with that and the longer you let that be, the deeper you're going to understand the way that your mind works and the opportunities that you have for showing up in the world with all of yourself, you know, that all of you belongs, every piece of you, the parts that you like and the parts that you don't, the parts that you're comfortable with and the parts that you're uncomfortable with. And as you learn to sit with all of yourself, we learn to sit with all of each other despite our differences and our different views, whether that's politically or whatever the case might be. And isn't that really what the world needs from us right now is to be able to sit and listen deeply. And if we can't do that internally, we can't do that externally. No, I love it. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I one of my, uh, the first quotes in the course actually is that the best way to understands you know everyone around you is by first learning how to understand understand yourself so i think uh that was beautiful mm, thank you so much um yeah so i think that's it that was a lo lovely conversation you know thank you so much for doing this with me you know i really enjoyed it oh my gosh i could talk to you for hours it was so <laughs> great well hopefully you know hopefully it's not over zoom you know forever and we get to reconnect again uh, i definitely miss not 
getting to go to the conference this year. I guess you wouldn't have been there any, anyways, but. Yeah, we, I, had, I was originally booked to come to the conference and then the, the way that um, things evolved. Yeah, she had just been born and right. actually the woman who runs the conference was like, why don't you still come and bring the baby? And I was like, ooh, last year we got hit with that snowstorm and I thought, do I really want to be like stuck in Canada yeah. in a snowstorm with a two-month-old? No, <laughs> so. it's not a good month for weather in March out here. So, but we'll be there next year for sure. Awesome. Well, hopefully it, it happens and, you know, I can't wait to see you then. I can't wait to see you too. Congratulations on everything. I'm so, so proud of you and so excited for you. Oh, thank you so much. It means a lot. Seriously, it does. Cause you know, you guys were the very first people who like really, I remember even when I told you that I was taking my first teacher training in California, like how excited you guys were for me. So like, trust me, it, it means a lot. I know it. I love both of you. So we're so grateful and, and we're just, we, we love watching your path unfold. It's been so powerful and so beautiful. And for you to just go out there and share your gifts with the world, but share the practice with the world, it's what the world needs. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Well, it's really good talking to you. Uh, you know, hopefully we can do this again in the future. I look forward to it. Yeah. And when everything's out, send it my way and I'll, I'll share it all around. Yeah, it should be, uh, it'll be on Friday at some time, but I'll, I'll definitely let you know beforehand. Yeah, shoot it all to me in an email and I'll share it out. Sounds perfect. Thank you very much. Okay, so good to see you. I'll see you soon. <laughs> you too. Bye. See you later.